Hi, I'm Rachel Cassandra, and welcome to Midday Magazine for Tuesday, November 22nd. More and more high school students have started vaping in recent years, in Petersburg and around the country. Throughout Alaska, more than a fifth of the high school population reports having used e-cigarettes in the last month. In Petersburg, school administrators are brainstorming ways to address this tricky problem. And they're turning to resources both inside and outside the school. School administrators in Petersburg have taken some early steps to cut down on students vaping. Teachers noticed that students seem to be meeting in the bathrooms to vape. So now students have to sign out of classrooms for bathroom breaks so the school can track them. The school's next move is to install vape detectors in bathrooms. Principal Ambler Moss says the sensors are meant to discourage bathroom meetups. And I think the, the vape sensors will help a lot, not to catch people, to prevent them from doing it in the first place. But Moss says Petersburg schools are shying away from harsh punishments. Moss explained that he's more interested in changing students' behavior than punishing kids who are vaping. And the last thing I want to do is come in really hard with sort of discipline and consequence, sort of, you know, draconian, hardcore consequences to probably alienate um a community whose support we need in order to work together to solve this or any, frankly, any issue. That's in line with advice from public health experts. Christy Knight, program manager for the State of Alaska Tobacco Prevention and Control Program, says suspensions just don't work. So we recommend alternatives to suspensions so that kids are offered resources and support quitting the products um, and that they don't return home and then just use the product more without treatment that they need. There are lots of reasons it's better for schools to avoid suspensions. Research shows that harsh discipline is more likely to be given to students of color and those who are homeless or living in poverty. In a well-documented pattern called the school-to-prison pipeline, kids who are given harsh punishments at school are more likely to end up in prison later in life. But Knight says the effect isn't limited to the student who's punished. And evidence is really suggesting that harsher punishments may reduce graduation rates for all students in their classrooms. Instead, Knight suggests an approach focused on education. She says studies have shown that teaching kids about the risks of vaping is more likely to get them to quit. So that if youth are caught using tobacco on school grounds, that they have access to an educational program that can support them in in not using the products, in quitting using the products. Petersburg High School is working with the American Lung Association to modify school policy to provide suspension alternatives. And Clute Painter says they may work with Rural Cap, the Rural Alaska Community Action Program, to train kids from the school to be peer educators. Rural Cap tobacco educator Charlie S. says research shows fellow teens are the best messengers. It's a lot better if they hear it from someone their own age than uh, an old guy like me. Outside of a formal peer education program, Petersburg public health nurse Erin Michael says kids simply talking to their friends about the issue is even more helpful. Having, you know, a friend say, you know, I really think this is not okay and really I don't want to be around you maybe when you're doing this or I'm uncomfortable with this or I'm worried about you. I think that can really have a huge impact on a teen. High school junior Charlotte Martin agrees. She's the student representative on Petersburg's school board. 
I think it would just say a lot if the other students disapprove of it. That's going to discourage the people from doing it, especially if they're older than them. But education about the risks of vaping only goes so far. Petersburg Superintendent Erica Klute-Painter says she's especially concerned about students who are already addicted. I mean, if we have kids that potentially can't get either can't get through a day without doing it, um, that's a that's a bigger issue. Samuel Steinbrugge is a social worker and supervises Search's Behavioral Health Clinic in Petersburg. He says group therapy can be a good fit for high schoolers struggling with addiction. The most important relationships for a teenager are the, the relationships they make with other teenagers. And, you know, that's one of the reasons why when we're working with teenagers, especially in areas of addiction and trauma, is having them do group work. And he says that having access to mental health care is a crucial component if a kid is caught vaping. Nicotine addiction may be a sign that teens are struggling with bigger problems. Where I would start is, you know, with with some empathy and compassion and linking them to some different resources, getting them in to see, you know, a mental health practitioner, you know, to do an assessment, to, to, to see what are the needs, why is this person turning to that behavior. Petersburg High School is also working to make more resources available to parents. Clute Painter says the school is working with the Petersburg Medical Center to offer education for parents about nicotine as part of a community-wide effort to curb addiction. In Petersburg, I'm Rachel Cassandra. That was part two of a two-part story on teen vaping in Petersburg. You can find both stories on kfsk.org. And you can join Alaska's Quit Vaping Text Program for Teens by texting VAPE FREE to 873-373. Tribes around Alaska are trying to find ways to stop climate change from eroding their ways of life, like access to traditional foods, clean waterways, and infrastructure in small villages. The Bureau of Indian Affairs recently announced more than $45 million in federal grant money for tribes around the country to address issues spurred by climate change. More than a third of that is making its way to Alaska, which has the largest number of federally recognized tribes in the country. KRBD's Reagan Miller reports. Alaska is warming up faster than any other part of the U.S. The changing climate has left communities to reckon with problems ranging from eroding shorelines and riverbanks to bacteria-infested waterways. The Biden administration's climate action grants are partially funded by last year's landmark bipartisan infrastructure law. They're intended to give tribes an infusion of cash to put towards projects that'll help fend off the worst of the impacts. In Southeast, there's a lot of pressure on making sure vital waterways stay clean and subsistence foods remain available. Ketchikan Indian Community was awarded nearly a quarter million dollars to keep working on the goals outlined in its climate action plan. Tribal officials say it's the federally recognized tribe's biggest federal climate grant yet. Tony Gallegos, the tribe's cultural resources director, says climate change threatens the indigenous way of life. Well, it presents kind of, you know, urgent risks to our traditional resources, um, you know, uh, food that uh, our citizens depend on. And part of preserving the way of life is understanding the role of traditional foods. So the tribe plans to, among other things, interview local elders about what traditional food sources are most important to them. Gallegos says that effort is already underway. We've already made some significant headway gathering and documenting tribal citizen reliance on traditional food and priorities um, with over uh, 320 responses to our initial survey last year. 
Some of the grant money also will be used to collect bacteria samples from local waters. The tribe has been monitoring bacteria levels at local beaches since 2017, and evidence seems to point to spikes after big rainstorms. Sometimes they call the first flush after uh, a rainfall event, especially when there hasn't been a rain, rain for a while, can often carry uh, pollutants into, uh, uh, in this case, the Narrows, where we are, know we have bacteria problems, so we want to start to uh, collect some, um, some water quality right during or right after those rainfall events. Gallego says they hope to test at least 10 samples over the next two years. Another $15,000 was awarded to the tribe to fund travel expenses for staff to attend conferences to learn about other ways to adapt to a changing climate. Further north, the Yakutak Clinkett tribe plans to use a grant of nearly $114,000 to help deepen local knowledge about tribal lands using LIDAR mapping technology. That'll allow the tribe to conduct detailed aerial surveys of its lands. Andrew Gildersleeve is the tribe's executive director. So LIDAR is a very exciting way for us to map with precision the tribal lands as they are. And this is creating a record for us and a baseline for us to use in the future and we hope for future generations to be able to establish and recognize trends. With LIDAR, Gildersleeve says the tribe can learn more about rising ocean levels, salmon habitat, and tidal zones. The tribe's grant consultant, Amanda Brumner, says the project will be completed in three phases, and it might even help broaden ancestral knowledge. We have an indigenous and traditional place name map um, that for years has just been, you know, a, uh, a map on the wall drawn of boundaries and areas from a time, you know, decades ago that in this ever-changing climate um, may not necessarily be accurate. So we're looking forward to having these high-resolution images. Elsewhere in the state, a handful of villages received funding to seek higher ground as they face increasingly brutal storms and erosion. That includes Unalakleet. With around 800 people, it's the largest community to receive a grant dedicated to what's called a managed retreat from the shore of Norton Sound. The local tribe received nearly $300,000 to move the village to a nearby hillside. Carrie Dwayne is the housing director for Unalakleet's tribe. She says an old seawall that surrounds the silty spit that the village sits on spared it from the worst of the damage from ex-Typhoon Murbach in September. But she says it's clear the village has to move further from shore to survive the new climate reality. Ground itself is can be unstable for the style of building that and the era of building that a lot of the houses are from. It's like the 70s, 80s, some even earlier, like the 40s and 50s. Um, and more concerning... The seawall probably isn't sufficient in the long run. She says a retreat from the shore would also give the village room to expand. Also, there's very little land to build on left. It's, like, pretty crowded. Dwayne says the plan is in its early stages. She says the tribe's next goal for this grant is to get a completed plan ready for another grant proposal next year. Reporting in Ketchikan, I'm Reagan Miller. Governor Mike Dunleavy told the graduating class of the Alaska Public Safety Academy in Sitka that he had their backs and that both he and the legislature were committed to providing law enforcement with all the resources needed to do the job the right way. Governor Dunleavy was the keynote speaker for graduation ceremonies held in Sitka on Friday, November 18th. 
The same day, the Alaska Division of Elections posted new totals for absentee and early ballots, which looked very likely to give Dunleavy the 50% of votes needed to win re-election to the office for another four years. In the following excerpt of his keynote remarks, Dunleavy sounded more ideological than he had during the last days of the election campaign, and very much like an incumbent returning for another term, with solid support from voters. And I just want you to know that I'll always have your back. The uh, state of Alaska, I view, is different than the, the rest of the United States. We, we haven't had any shootings or lootings or burnings when the rest of the uh, lower 48 and some of our major cities were going through that, um, what I consider to be nonsense. There's no discussion about defunding the police here in the state of Alaska um, by virtually anyone because we understand the importance that public safety provides. In essence, you provide for us the ability to live the lives that we have uh, in the freest country on the face of the earth and what I consider to be one of the freest, if not the freest states on the face of the earth. We know that if we get into a bind, you're there. We know that um, if there's a search and uh, rescue issue uh, that, is, uh, that, that needs your help, you'll be there. We know that uh, in dangerous situations, you'll be there, whether it's with um, uh, other, other folks or wildlife, we know that you're there. Not everyone can do this job. This is a special job for special people. And what we have on the stage here today are special people. And um, as the governor of the great state of Alaska, and on behalf of the people of Alaska, I just want to thank each and every one of you for choosing this profession. And I wish you nothing but the best. You'll get, um, you'll get tremendous support from myself, and I know from the legislature, and all of the uh, resources that you'll need to do your job the right way. But in the end, um, I'm very proud of you. And at this moment today, I'm very proud to be um, the governor of this great state and to be here with you in Sitka. That was Governor Mike Dunleavy addressing the latest class of the 17-week Alaska Law Enforcement Training Program in Sitka. A total of 43 cadets cadets received their badges and will now enter the field as state troopers, wildlife enforcement officers, police officers, and village public safety officers. And that's the news portion of Midday Magazine.